Turn in your Bibles to Jude. The book of Jude is only one chapter, so we'll go to the book of Jude. We're going to be in verses 5 through 7. And I struggled this week. As a matter of fact, I just want to be transparent with you. Um, I picked this book uh, <clears throat> for verse uh, 3, or for the emphasis of contending for the faith. And so as I prepared and I thought through it, I wanted to, to, to preach a series of messages on contending for the faith and, and so on. But the way it's turned out, as I read through the book, it's, it's, it's had a, a little different flavor to it. And so I'm going to rest in the, the Lord's guidance as we work through this. Jude wrote this for a reason. And he wrote verses 5 through 7 to follow verses 3 through 4 for a reason. And so I hope that we can get into it and look at it. It's going to be about judgment today. Um, and I've struggled this week thinking about uh, the harshness of that word judgment and the harshness of this passage and so how can I bring an encouraging message of hope and help with the content like this? Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. There's a... There's a lot of heaviness in this passage. And as I struggled with it, I remembered um, this week as I was thinking about it, the, the story of Jonah. And Jonah's message was, in uh, 40 days, this city will be destroyed. That was his message. His message was a message of judgment. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And he preached for three days as he walked across that city and he continued to proclaim, and his message was, destruction's coming in 40 days, and God used it to bring a revival. And so uh, my hope today is that I, as I begin this, this section of Jude, that God will bring, bring a revival as we look at this. Uh, there's several miscellaneous things about this uh, part of the passage um, that I want to draw your attention to before we get into these three verses, but uh, Jude wanted to write a different letter. Remember, it says that although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation in verse three, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. And so this part of the message or part of the letter that we have today is one thing that when Jude looked at the state of the church that he was a part of, he found it necessary to write about judgment. And I think that's something that's important for you and I. In these verses that we're looking at, he's going to begin to describe the end of those ungodly people that crept in unnoticed. And for me, it's interesting that he does it by turning to the Old Testament. It's very significant for you and I. As I have said before, this kind of reference to the Old Testament ought to encourage us and it ought to challenge us. Jude, writing 2,000 years ago, is going to encourage that church and to challenge those Christians by using the example and the instruction of a book that was written 1,500 to 2,000 years beforehand. Jude, at the time of his writing, is going to appeal to a document, to a story, to revelation that was given 2,000 years before. 
And when he does it, it's completely relevant to the church that he writes to. It ought to be obvious for you and I to see the the application there. You and I are looking at a letter in the book of Jude that was written less than 2,000 years ago for your encouragement, for my encouragement, and for our instruction. And it is still completely relevant. The word of God is profitable. And it is relevant for us. And so as we look at it today, I'm excited about that truth. As he appeals backwards 2,000 years, I'm appealing backwards 2,000 years. This is helpful and hopeful. Also something about this letter that's, that's been growing on me even more. Jesus Christ is central to the section of judgment in this letter. He's central to it. Jesus Christ is revealed in a way that is not often spoken about. Jude reveals that Jesus Christ is responsible for the destruction of the unbelieving generation of the Exodus. Look at verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus Christ is central to this picture of judgment. It's interesting for you and I to know that if, as we read through the Old Testament, as we've read through the book of Exodus, Jesus' name wasn't mentioned. The Father is the one in the Old Testament that is pictured. God Almighty, Yahweh, is the one who's pictured as as bringing about the deliverance and bringing about the destruction. But God in his sovereignty and in his grace, he's revealed to you and I that it was Jesus Christ, the Son, who did this work. Jesus is is responsible. Even in this, he's responsible for the captivity of, Of the angels in verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he, Jesus, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Jesus Christ is the one who's responsible for this judgment. Now, as as we read what Jude says, another thing that stood out to me during this uh, preparation over the last several weeks Jesus was Jude's brother. Think about the reality of having a brother who is the one who is the judge in the book of Exodus. Think about the reality of knowing this and pursuing him in this way. I'm very thankful and grateful for the way the Lord has worked in Jude's life because Jude, when he talks about his brother, there's no common language. He doesn't even call Jesus brother. He, he says it in an offhand way. He says, he says, Jude, a servant of our Lord Jesus Christ and brother of James in verse 1. James, the brother of Jesus. And Jude, in writing this, doesn't give Jesus any kind of common nickname, only ever absolute reverence and submission. Only ever absolute reverence and submission. And it caused me to think that if if someone who was that close to Jesus Christ treats him with such honor, maybe we ought to, to take note this morning and see the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ in this revelation. As we work into the passage, there's three examples that Jude gives of how judgment was made on peoples or beings who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and denied their only master and Lord Jesus Christ. These three things 
are identify these ungodly people. And the first one is found in verse five, unbelief. Look at what verse five says. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Judgment is coming because of their unbelief. Judgment came upon the, these Israelites who had left the land of Egypt. Judgment came upon them because they did not believe. And Christ destroyed them. Jesus Christ destroyed those of the unbelieving generation who rejected God in the wilderness. We remember the story. Exodus, God delivers them from Egypt crosses the Red Sea, takes them out into the, into the desert, gives them the law after the, the, the Ten Commandments is given. Then God takes them up through Kadesh Barnea and they send the, the 12 spies up into the promised land. And what do the, the, the 12 uh, spies see? This great and wonderful land flowing with milk and honey. Think about that picture. There are so many cows. There are so many cows with calves. There is so much flowers. There are so many uh, fruitful vines and trees that the bees are overloaded. So much so that there's honey and there is or, 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 or milk flowing in this land. What a blessing. But 10 of the spies only see the hard work that it'll take to defeat the people in the land. And they bring their message back. And they share their message. Yes, of course, there's so much produce there. But do you see the armies? We cannot do this. We can't. Even though God had promised. God had promised. God had promised. Joshua and Caleb stand up and say, yes, we can. God is faithful. The people shouted them down and wanted to kill them. And so God brought judgment upon them and said, you'll never make it in because you didn't believe. This is Christ. These are the Israelites who were God's people who had been delivered in a wonderful way. These Israelites who had been in slavery. These Israelites who had been in bondage. God had delivered them and yet they refused to believe in God and they were destroyed because of their unbelief. This is a challenge for you and I. Church, I want you to feel challenged this morning. Just because you were baptized, just because you've been a part of this church for decades, does not mean that across the board, God is going to allow you into the promised land. Just because your parents are Christians, doesn't mean that you are going to walk into heaven. Just because you have the name of Christian and church membership, does not mean that you're going to be welcomed into heaven. These were Israelites who had received the blessing of the deliverance, and yet they did not trust God. They did not walk with the Lord. They were not faithful. They did not take him at his word. What a challenge for us. They were judged because of their unbelief. I want us to consider the importance of this today. Even the Israelites were judged. And that was very harsh. Jesus Christ is the judge. And you and I need to trust him. We must remember that the Christian life is a walk of faith. Salvation is a gift from God. 
Our sanctification is the process by which God's gift of faith is exercised. But we must believe. We must take him at his word. God's promises must be central to our daily lives. This is the theme of the principle that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. It's not us in any kind of rational way that takes the food that we eat and transfers the nutrients into our body. Right? It's this. We eat a bowl of cereal. Maybe not cereal is not a good healthy example, but we eat something healthy and we don't rationally make it part of our body. God does that. And this principle here is, is, is not, not only that we would eat, we all eat, but that we would work and put his word into our life and watch as he works in us and through us. He destroyed them because of their unbelief. They did not believe. The second thing in verse 6, the thing that identified these people was their rebellion. These beings, here the example is these angels, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Jesus dealt with the angels who crept where they wanted to. They rebelled against him. They did not stay where he authorized them to stay. They were created beings that he placed in a position. And they left their proper dwelling. They rebelled against his authority. And who chained them? It says that Jesus Christ has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. Jesus Christ... This morning, we need to consider the one who is able to chain the angels. This is Christ. The picture here is of chains. That's the image. But the idea is more of bondage that sin brings. These once glorious and free beings have been cast into utter darkness where they must remain weak and captive until the final judgment. They are no longer free because they have rebelled against God. They have done their own thing. They left their proper authority. If the angels do not escape, who are we to think that we would escape? Jude's message here is is very, very important. He's raised it up. Not only are people who are part of the body, uh, they consider where they are, but he raises the stakes and says, even the angels won't escape. Who do you think you are that you will escape when you rebel against God? And this picture here is he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Jesus Christ still sees them in this way. This is an active reality. Jesus Christ is in control. And from this passage, we see that Jesus Christ takes rebellion very seriously. And then he goes on into verse 7. And and this is one where, where I think we all need to really pay attention when we come into our culture Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is self-serving idolatry here. Unbelief, rebellion, and now making themselves the idol. This is who they worship. Jesus dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah. And they serve as an example. Think about Jude going way back to the Old Testament, way back to the beginning, and using this as an example 
for you and I also. It says that they are undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah today. Punished for 4,000 years. Judgment is real today. This ought to challenge you and I. There's an obvious correlation to our day in this situation. We can see this very sinful unbelief and rebellion in our culture, and we can see this kind of sexual sin and indulgence in our culture. As we walk this way, we know, we understand that sexual sins, contrary to God's plan, one man, one woman in marriage, not letting the marriage bed be undefiled. These people 4,000 years ago were judged because of their selfish desire to pursue unnatural works. For you and I, the culture is, is for real. Sexual sins are abhorrent and same-sex desires are the pinnacle of gross wickedness. Christians, this is where we stand Understanding and knowing that God's judgment rests on these people who do these things. This is a powerful reality. Sodom and Gomorrah still stand as ancient examples of the destruction that God will bring on cities, nations, and peoples who leave the natural order and pursue satisfaction outside of God's will. Judgment. Judgment. It's quite possible that this judgment is placed last in this list because of the incredibly devastating truth of the reality of God's judgment on real people. People in Sodom, people in Gomorrah, addresses, locations, souls were judged because of their sin. This is serious. This final nail serves to show us the reality that God judges this kind of thing. God's judgment will come. And you and I must guard ourselves and our families from this. This is why when, when Peter or when Paul talks about sexual sins in Colossians chapter 3, he says to put it to death. Because judgment is real. The wages of sin is death. The thing I want to close with is this. The theme of judgment. We know rebellion, unbelief, idolatry. But the picture here of judgment, he gives three examples. Destruction. He destroyed those who did not believe. Even though it took 40 years for God's judgment to ultimately fall upon the Israelites in the wilderness, that generation was destroyed for unbelief. Bondage. These angels have been completely restricted for life. They have been utterly separated from the glory that once was theirs. They are not free. The picture of judgment is bondage. And Sodom and Gomorrah served as an example by undergoing a punishment, punishment of eternal fire. The third thing there is eternally punished by Jesus Christ because of their wicked rebellion and selfish pursuits. Today, I challenge you 
to consider this. Whenever we speak of judgment or think of judgment, we need to think of it in this way. And we need to consider three things. First, the Bible presents judgment as a very real, universal thing. Everyone will be judged. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Everyone will face judgment. Everyone will face destruction. Everyone will face eternal bondage. Everyone will face eternal punishment for your sins. It's universal. Second, it is always presented in extremely graphic and devastating terms. Always throughout the Bible, God's judgment is connected to these devastating realities. Think about how bad sin is when eternity is the consequence. The word eternal has been mentioned twice in this passage. Judgment must be terrible if it's eternal. There's no way to buy yourself out of this judgment. There is no purgatory. There is no way to work it out. The end is the end. Judgment is eternal. It's always presented this way. There is no way to earn release. There's no way to earn mercy or grace. It wouldn't be mercy or grace. We are dead in our trespasses. Judgment is final and judgment is permanent. Third, I want you to think about this with me as we close. This judgment is the same as what Jesus Christ suffered on the cross. Why the cross? Why the cross? The one who had all the faith. The one who was the one who trusted his father. No unbelief whatsoever. The one who lived and only did what he saw his father doing. No rebellion. Always obedient. The one who never sinned. Never transgressed. The pure and holy one. This one, Jesus Christ, took upon himself this judgment that you and I have been talking about for the last 15 minutes. This terrible judgment, Jesus Christ died. He was destroyed. He underwent punishment. The righteous one died for sins. His body was destroyed because of rebellion and transgression. This morning, when you and I consider the terrible nature of this judgment, the judgment on the Israelites and their destruction, the judgment on the angels and their bondage, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and their eternal punishment. When we think of this, the cross becomes a relief. The cross becomes a relief. In Isaiah 53, it says this, but he, speaking of Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we have gone, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's good to talk about judgment. It's good to talk about judgment because only within the conversation of judgment can we make sense of the cross where Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners and took upon himself the judgment that you and I rightly deserve. This morning, Jude has revealed some, some very challenging things for us to consider about sin and the destiny of sinners. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
There is nothing we can do at this point to take back our rebellion or our transgression or our selfish idolatry and sexual sin. There's nothing we can do to fix that. We can't go back in time and make it right. There's nothing we can do. We stand condemned before the holiness of God and there is no hope on our own. We cannot afford, we cannot bridge the gap. There's nothing we can do. We stand condemned. Sin must be punished. One of the things that Jude points out about these ungodly people is that they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. You and I often think of grace as something that is free and easy. We tend to take it for granted in such a way that the judgment loses all of its bite. I know this is true about judgment, but God loves us. God is gracious. He'll save us. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is repent and believe. Repent and believe. On one hand, God is gracious. God has given them the opportunity to repent instead of immediately passing judgment on them. But these people have used the idea of his grace as an excuse to continue to serve themselves. And in so doing, God's grace has become just one more way that they can please themselves. You and I need to repent of that. We need to see the picture. This passage demonstrates very well all of the punishment. So what do we do with this? My prayer is and has been that we will find ourselves struggling with the truth of our sins. What can we possibly do to escape? And I hope we come to this. There's only one way. The only thing that is available to us at this moment is God's offer of forgiveness and cleansing. And I hope you can see that today. That's the gospel message. This is why the news of Jesus Christ is called good news. Because we are hopeless on our own. But Jesus Christ has died in the place of sinners. And he offers up himself for our forgiveness. All we have to do is believe. All we have to do is repent and turn to him. Maybe today that's you. What do you do? Paul says it this way. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Just call on his name. It's that easy. He's done all the work. Repent. Get over yourselves and come to the Lord Jesus and he will give you life and he will keep you in utter lightness for eternity. Church, this is our message. This is our message. Let's share it this week for our good and for his glory.